Thanks, Mike. And thank you, Corey and Mariah and Chris, for joining us today. We are working through the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And uh, we have spent a few weeks on the story of Abraham and Sarah and their family, and this is the last of the uh, messages on Abraham. And it's, uh, it's really, it's come to the, the uh, almost to the end of Abraham's life, and he has presented with a significant text. It's a, it's a story that I think that we're, we're familiar with, um, but the significance and power of it, I, I don't think ever stops uh, impressing upon us. When, when Mike read the phrase, and Abraham lifted the knife to slaughter his son, the, the room was just perfectly still. I just, it just felt heavy. Well, the, the text begins, God tests Abraham. Now, we have seen Abraham and Sarah presented with a number of challenges prior to this, but this is the first time it's actually called a test. These other situations that Abraham and Sarah got themselves into were uh, circumstances in life. God did not bring them upon them. They, you know, when they went into Egypt and Abraham gave his wife away, that God didn't tell him to do that. When they went into Gerar and Abraham did the same thing, or when Sarah had the, the idea to give her servant to her husband uh, as his wife, uh, God did not tell them to do that. But here God presents them with a test. Now, we want to look at this theme today of testing. And I think that we can go in one of two ways, really, on the extremes. We can think that God doesn't really have any sort of care or concern for anything that's going on in this world at all. If there was an all-loving and all-powerful God, certainly we would see evidence of that in the the evil and the challenges that we as a culture face, uh, the destruction that we bring upon ourselves, the hurt that we bring others, God would certainly do something about it. So he doesn't, if he exists, he doesn't seem to care. Um, so we don't see God at, at all involved in our lives. And I think on the other hand, we can say that every little small trial that we have is something that God or the devil has presented to us. And so everything is this massive test or temptation to see if, if we're going to pass. So I think we need to get clarity. What does it mean to be tested by God? What does it mean to be tested by God? And what is God expecting of us in the tests? And so as I said, this is the first time that the Scriptures actually say that God tested Abraham. God used the previous trials, but they aren't called tests. At the end of the trial that, that Mike read, at the end of the story, when, after Abraham passes the test, God says, by myself do I swear. I will surely bring these things to pass. And it's a repeat of all of the promises that God has already stated. And so I think it forces the question, if Abraham had not passed the test, what would have happened? Because the text is very clear. God repeats it and he swears. It's it's almost as if, if Abraham hadn't done it, what would God have done to fulfill his promises? Would it, because if Abraham would have failed the test, what, he, what it would have shown, as we'll talk a little bit more about later, is that 
He loved his own rather than God, and that he wanted to hold on to what he had rather than fear and obey God. It would have not instructed Isaac well, and it would not have set a pattern well, and it would have clearly um, frustrated or upset God's effort. I mean, it, it begs the question. And I, and I think it's important for us to just to ask that question and to kind of let it sit. Because it's hard to answer it. Is God going to go back on his promises? Because we are also presented with promises. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul states, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. But yet we also see places in the text where people shipwreck their faith. People don't experience the completion that God promises in Christ. So we ask the question, but it's perhaps impossible to answer. And if we look at the timing of the test to Abraham, everything seems to be set. So we are about um, 75 years into the process that God started with Abraham. It started when he was 75. He dies at 175. Him and Sarah have worked through the challenges. They're in the land. They're very prosperous. They have, none of their enemies have been able to thwart them. God has presented them and he has given them a son through their own bodies. And so if you were to look at Abraham and Sarah's life, they have arrived. They've arrived. And I would imagine that they're just kind of waiting to die and for the next generation to come and for God's promises to continue to be filled. But here they are, and then boom, God presents them with this test out of the blue. Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. The son you love, your only son, which and it wasn't his only son. He had Ishmael. But in, in terms of the promise, Ishmael was gone. He's not in the household anymore. And it's repeated, the son you love, your only son. And so this threw, well, Abraham has got a three-day journey to think about this. God tells him it's three days later. Can you imagine the turmoil that Abraham was in? And the text doesn't say whether he told Sarah or not what was going on. In fact, at the end of the story, the next section, Sarah dies. Some commentators speculate, because the text isn't clear, when Sarah found out what happened. And you know, Isaac doesn't come back with dad. Is the shock of what happened killer? There are some that believe that that's the case, because that's the next thing. And it doesn't say that Sarah died full of years with a good old life like other deaths are described. And so this, this was an interruption and surprise into kind of the end of their prosperous and successful life. And the test itself seems outrageous. Why would God ask this? Why would a good God 
ask a father to sacrifice his only and beloved son. Regardless of the, the substance of the promise that Isaac was supposed to fulfill as the offspring of Abraham. Isaac was the one that God said, through Isaac I will fulfill my promises. And that's part of the, that's part of the challenge for us and, there's, and, and you can kind of think of it from this point of view. This is helpful for me. God asked this of Abraham, and because Abraham passed, we don't need to worry about what we would do in a circumstance like that. Because here we see it, we see it modeled, and we see the trial. And the important thing really isn't what would I do. And obviously, God does not condone child sacrifice. That's later repeated throughout the Mosaic Law a number of times, and it's one of the reasons why God used Israel to, to cast out all of the other nations is because they engaged in child sacrifice. But child sacrifice was one of these cultural things that God was wanting his people to eliminate. It's not a part of the way of the Lord. And this is part of that lesson, too. He's instructing Abraham, Abraham, I am not really interested in child sacrifice. What I'm interested in is your fear of me, your obedience to me. And we see this challenge, and again, because it's in the text, we're not baptized into Abraham, we're baptized into Christ, but because it's in the text and we're reading it, we are also given the same question. To what degree would I obey God? To what degree? We're not asked to sacrifice our children. But we are asked to think about to what degree would we obey God. I think it's also important to see in here, it seems like Abraham expected God to raise Isaac from the dead. He tells his young men, the servants that he brings along with him, wait here, I and my son Isaac will return. And it seems like, well, maybe he's just saying that. <laughs> he doesn't want to scare the servants. But why does the text put a small conversation like that in there? I mean, remember, the Hebrew text is very efficient and economical. It doesn't waste any space. It's a very important statement that Abraham makes. I and my son will be back. And he certainly was still in the position of believing, okay, God has told me through Isaac will, the, will my promises be made. And so it seems like that that's probably what's in Abraham's mind. And we are blessed with the author of Hebrews saying that Abraham certainly did expect God to raise Isaac from the dead. Hebrews tells us that, but from the text itself, it seems to, to bear that. And I think it's also important to point out that, that God was not testing Abraham's faith. Abraham had shown his faith. In chapter 15, God said, I see your faith, Abraham, and I credit you with righteousness. Yeah, you're a sinner. Yeah, you and your wife, you make a lot of mistakes. But, but at the, in, in your hearts, you're believing me and you're following me. You've left your land. You are following these promises. You're holding in there. You're walking before me. It's not faith that Abraham is being tested in. It's his fear of the Lord. There are two passages 
Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. And then later he says, by myself I have sworn declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, which is a repeat of all of the things that he has already promised, but now he has sworn. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So we started off this series by saying we, we want to go through the Pentateuch because the Scriptures communicate that, that these five books of Moses, the Torah, the law, are meant to be read and discussed and taught and meditated upon because they grow our fear and awe of the Lord. And so here we see the man Abraham put into this situation that is going to test that very thing. It's what the text is instructing us about. And again, God is not asking us to literally sacrifice our children. But the text is there. The scriptures are there for us to be asking this question. To what degree do I fear God? Do, to what degree will I obey Him? It's really the perfect test for Abraham. It seems unfair and it seems outrageous, but it seems to be the perfect test because he has this emotional connection to his son, his only son, the son whom you love. Again, it's repeated, so the text is wanting us to really be clear that this is an emotional, the most emotional decision that Abraham will ever be faced with. And all of the things that Abraham was hoping that God would fulfill, believing that God would fulfill, all the things that God promised from the very beginning, a great name, a mighty nation, prosperity, all, all of the things that every single human being wants was wrapped up in the promise of the offspring. So not only is this emotional connection to his son being, te- you know, re- really, he's asked to give it up, But all of the things from a human perspective, all of the delights of what it means to live in this world, family, prosperity, blessing, protection from enemies, a great name, honored, all of those things. If Isaac is dead, none of those things come true. Now, again, we can quickly, well, God is sovereign and he's going to work it all out. Well, the problem with that answer, it's true, but the problem with that response to these tough questions doesn't get us to think more deeply about the tough questions. It's a perfect test for Abraham. It's a perfect test. Is is my fear and awe of God greater than the love of my own? My own family? My own future? my own well-being, my own sense of what is right and wrong. You know, 
and it seems really strong in this text, but you know, Jesus asked the disciples the same thing and stated the same thing. If you do not love me more than your father or your mother or your spouse or your children, you have no place in the kingdom of God. That's Jesus. That's not an obscure text in the Old Testament where they were still sacrificing children in the culture surrounding. This is Jesus, and he's asking the same thing. Again, while God will not test us like this, we do have to recognize that God does test us. Sometimes the circumstances are like Abraham and Sarah's early trials, troubles that we get ourselves into, temptations that come before us, and these things are a type of test. We can't say they're from God, but we are being tested in them. But sometimes God does give us tests directly. Robert Clinton Jr. is a a leadership expert in in testing and, and Uh, the development processes. He's a PhD professor at Fuller. I think he's retired now. He's written a number of books on God's maturing of us and the role of tests. He identifies three different types of tests that he sees in Old Testament Scripture and with, with, with contemporary and historical Christian leaders. There are integrity tests. Integrity tests test our um, trueness to ourselves. There are loyalty tests, tests that are we going to be faithful to God? There are word tests. Do we accurately understand the truth that God has presented in his word or do we twist it or distort it or misunderstand it for our own purposes? And oftentimes God combines these. But God uses them to shape us into Christ-likeness. And he argues that that that. Robert Clinton argues that what happens is that God slowly works through the temptations and trials that we find ourselves in, but that God also introduced tests into our lives, and as we mature and pass these tests, we move on to greater responsibility and to to greater fulfillment of God's calling upon our lives. And if we don't pass these tests and trials, what happens is that we just find ourselves in a loop Because the the principle that God works with is that, and and this is repeated throughout the New Testament, he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. If we we don't pass, pass the tests that come upon us as we grow, we'll increasingly, well, we, we just won't come into what God has called us to. We'll just keep cycling through the same trials and tests until we pass them. Again, the New Testament authors affirm this. Paul says that tests are necessary for us to to grow in our understanding and skill of discernment in knowing God's will. James says that the the tests and trials that we face, they produce steadfastness and character. Steadfastness is reliability. It's one of the most important qualities that Christians can possess. If, If we as the church of God, if we as families... If we as Christians in the world around us cannot demonstrate that we are reliable and dependable people, we're not going to experience the joy of having greater responsibility to love the people around us and grow in those relationships. 
Peter says that tests prove the genuineness of our faith, which gives a rise to greater honor and glory in Jesus Christ. God calls us to obey. And then earlier in the text, he told Abraham, Abraham, I want you to walk before me blameless. And we read that term blameless and we think, I'm supposed to be perfect? That's not what the word means. The word means wholehearted. The word means complete. And what God was asking Abraham is not to walk before him in perfection. What he's saying, Abraham, I want you to walk before me as a whole person, as an honest person, as a sincere person. I don't want you to be hiding anything from me. That's what it means. You're not hiding anything from the Lord in your conscience. Because obviously you can't hide anything from the Lord. But in our minds, we can. And we deceive ourselves. And what happens, and this idea of wholeness or being complete, if we begin to hide aspects of our life from the Lord, which means we're going to be hiding aspects of our lives from other people, what happens is that we sense the incompleteness. We sense the lack of wholeness. We don't know who we are. It creates great trials in terms of our sense of self, our sense of identity, and it's a big part as image bearers of God. That's what human beings are. We are bearing the image of God. The further away we get from God as individuals and as a society, the further away we get from a true sense of self and who we are, and and that leads to the kind of identity confusion that we see in our culture today. We don't even know if we're men or women anymore. I mean, it, if, if the past generations would look upon us as a generation now, we, we, have a, we have chronological snobbery. We think that the further we go historically, the better we are, the more wise we are. Previous generations would look on our generation now and laugh and, and scoff at us because of how ridiculous we've come. We don't know who we are. It shows how far we are from living wholehearted before God. The key to the passage is this statement that Abraham tells his son Isaac. God will provide for himself the lamb. That's the key to the passage. Abraham is is communicating faith in God to his son. He's raising his son. His son is probably, you know, we get the image that he's a small boy. He's probably somewhere between the ages of 25 and 37. Isaac is 37 when his mom dies. Again, it seems like this this whole scenario had something to do with with his mom's sudden death. It's a speculation. text isn't clear. It's one of these questions that we ask. But he had to have been able to carry the wood on his own up the hill. A small boy would not have been able to do that. And and the last thing, what the text says, um, and it said Abraham returned to the servants, to the young men. Isaac did not return. The next time Isaac pops up, he's living in a different place. Because the next, after Sarah dies, that narrative, we have the narrative of Isaac sending off his, excuse me, of Abraham sending off his servant to find a wife for Isaac. The servant leaves Abraham, goes and finds Isaac's wife, which we'll talk about next week, uh, and then he goes to Isaac living in a different place. This 
situation created estrangement between Abraham and his son Isaac. But he was instructing Isaac. He was showing what it meant to fear God and to obey God. And God did provide. God did provide. So God provides at least in these three ways. Paul tells us that God will not tempt us beyond what we can handle. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So in all of the various trials and temptations that we face or the tests that God gives, God provides a way out. Maybe it's the Spirit working in our consciences. Maybe it's somebody that admonishes and and corrects us if they see us moving towards sin or yielding to temptation. Maybe it's a sermon. Maybe it's, who knows, a podcast. Somehow, someway, God will put a situation, he will give us the strength and the opportunity to get out of it. That's one way God provides. But also, second, God provides when we don't pass the test, when we fail, because we know that that's, that happens. <laughs> the scriptures say that anybody who says they do not sin is a liar and they do not practice the truth. So God provides when we fail. And I think one of the best images of this in God and his relationship with Abraham and Sarah is when God comes to Sarah and says, you are going to have a son from your own body. And she laughs at his face because she's right there. She's at the tent door looking onto this conversation with God. She's facing God. God is facing Abraham and her. Abraham doesn't see her, but God sees Sarah. Sarah sees him. And God says, why did you laugh? And then her response Oh, I didn't laugh. <laughs> she lies directly to the face of God. And what does God do? He says, oh, no, you did. And he walks on. He walks on. You know, when, when, when I'm lied to, <laughs> I don't respond like that. But you know what? God, but God, there's a, there's a beautiful passage in Romans chapter 3. It said that God... Prior to Jesus' atonement, it said God passed over the sins previously committed prior to Jesus. Why? Because God already had it in his mind that the sins prior to Jesus and that the sins after Jesus are all going to be atoned by Jesus. So God did not need to take his wrath on, he, he did not need to take his wrath out on this righteous woman, Sarah, because she's in the righteous way now. God didn't need to take his wrath out on her. She's a righteous woman. She's living by faith. She failed. Because he knew that his son would atone for her sin. And he just, he walks on. Doesn't make a big deal out of it. The scriptures say that God does not treat us according to our iniquities. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord does not take into account. Oftentimes we think that God is taking our sins into account still. Now, he takes them into his account in terms of how he is thinking about our maturing process. But he does not take them into account as a a judge takes them into account. 
you have done these things, here is the punishment you deserve, here is the punishment you're getting. That's not how God works for those who are righteous, for those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ to atone for their sin. And the third way that God provides is by giving us the Holy Spirit. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to bring life to our mortal bodies, which means to create in us, he regenerates us, he gives us a new heart, he gives us new loves with that new heart, and we grow in our love for God, we grow in our fear of God, we grow in our obedience to God because the Spirit has made us like Jesus. We are baptized into his death, which means the sin, the death that Jesus died is the death that we died, our sins are forgiven, and we're baptized into his life, the resurrection life that Jesus resurrected into is is now our life through the power of the holy spirit we are alive to god god provides us to be righteous paul says he says it's saving philippians chapter 3 he says i am striving to take hold of that which christ has already taken hold of for me it's there christ has got it it's been secured the calling he has upon our life it's it's been grasped. The victory has been secured. We just have to walk wholeheartedly before God. Again, not in perfection, but in honesty and sincerity. God, here I am. Here I am. We will have tests like Abraham that we will fail. We've gotten a number of questions over this series because here we see these, these really dumb mistakes that Abraham and Sarah commit, but God's still fulfilling his promises. And, I want to make, and it's really, really important that we're clear on this. God will fulfill his promises and has in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said it is finished when he died on the cross. The purposes and promises of God have been secured and fulfilled. We're still waiting for all the repercussions and effects of Jesus' death and resurrection to take, a, to take effect, most notably when he returns. But the victory when he returns has been secured. God will fulfill his purposes in Jesus Christ. No question. The big question is to what degree we will be participating in them. That's the big question. It's possible for us, well, we will fail tests. We will fail trials. We will ignore God's prodding. But you can get to a point, and the Scriptures describe this for Christians. We can come to a place where we have disobeyed God so long that we sear our consciences, which means we don't hear the Spirit anymore. We don't hear our consciences anymore because we've disobeyed so long. We can shipwreck our faith. It's a reality. It's a reality. And we can miss out on God's calling in our lives. I don't know what happened there. It's a scary thing to think about. But it's part of what it means to live in awe of and fear of God. Because we recognize that we're in this place 
but that it's something that we engage in with fear and trembling because it's such a sensitive thing. To walk before God wholeheartedly is not an easy thing. I don't think many of us will face the kinds, we won't face the kind of trial that Abraham did. And these kinds of things in terms of where we can shipwreck our faith or sear our consciences, these don't happen instantly. It's possible. But generally, these things take place over time. Little tests, little trials, little temptations. And the greatest challenges we may face are going to be like Abraham's in terms of the things that God is going to test us in are the things that we love the most and that he provides. God did not ask Abraham to, um, you know, give up a brand new car. (laughs) He asked him to give up the thing that he loved the most that was critical to his success as a father and for the success of the generations coming. Yet God promises happiness and prosperity. God promises love and wholeness in our families and in our community. God promises fruitfulness and productivity in our work. God promises that we can enjoy the fruits of our work. And yes, God says we will grow in our gratitude and enjoyment of all of these things. And it's these things that can become the greatest threats to our blameless walk. Do we enjoy the blessings of God and strive for the blessings of God more so than we strive to walk whole before God himself? Those are the biggest challenges. And we will be tested. And I think knowing this grows our fear and grows our awe for God because we are putting ourselves into a proper position before him. What Abraham is teaching us, what the text is teaching us, is that there is no greater call than to fear and obey God. And we can see in this story a lot of gospel imagery. The father gives up his son for a higher calling. The son goes and is sacrificed. Or that's the idea anyway. Obviously, it doesn't happen. We see a father and a son going alone up the mountain, just like the father and Christ were together up until the last moment when God forsook Christ and poured out his full wrath upon him. We are called to a greater calling than ourselves. Christ did the same. Christ gave up the glory. He gave up what it meant to be God. And in that came to a greater place of glory, just like Abraham did. I swear that now I will pour out my blessings upon you. And that's, what is called, and that's what God has called us to, and we can fulfill it because, like I said, Jesus has already fulfilled it for us. Let me pray. Lord God, I still have a lot of unanswered questions, and I wonder what the tests are going to be. And that causes me to fear you, Lord God. And I pray that you would grow our fear of you and our all of you and our love for you, God, so that, that we can go through this life in a wholehearted way, honestly, sincerely before you, uh, so that we can know you more and that we can come into the fullness of what you've promised through Jesus Christ for us. 
In your son's name we pray. Amen.